Would you all stand, please? Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies Of liberty Let our rejoicing Rise high as the listening skies Let it resound Loud as the rolling sea Faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of a new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chasing rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died, yet with a steady beat, have not a weary feet come to the... This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore, and uh, this is also Juneteenth. And uh, I'm very honored to have as my guest on today's uh, episode uh, the incredible, the wonderful, the brave Congresswoman from Oakland, California, Representative Barbara Lee. Barbara, thank you so much for being on Rumble today. Gosh, I'm really happy to be with you, Michael. Uh, Thank you for, you know, pushing the envelope and making sure that um, what's left of our democracy. prevails so that we can make sure it it thrives after November. One thing that we know must happen uh, during this time is that democracy must not die. That's right. I'll tell you, I've never felt it that the possibility of that happening being so close uh, in my uh, entire life. Yeah. yeah. But this, this is, you know what, this is uh, since Juneteenth, right? Now let let me just share uh, how, how deep this is for me and how much, uh, my family's been through as as every African American in this country. My grandfather was actually born in El- in uh, Galveston, Texas, May the thirtieth, eighteen sixty five. That w- he was born wow. uh, during slavery in Texas because it was only June nineteenth, Juneteenth that year that the uh, Union. General, I think it was Granger, came to Galveston to let us know then that uh, enslaved people were free. So, you know, <laughs> for me growing up, knowing that, and my grandfather passed away when I was 18, this is, this is very deep and very important uh, that uh, we talk about where we are and uh, what our democracy, <laughs> how fragile it is, but how far we've come. Well, that's an amazing, first of all, that's your grandfather you're talking about, right? My grandfather, W.C. Parrish, uh-huh, born in wow. Galveston, Texas, one month, well, two weeks before. Two June weeks 10th. before 
before Juneteenth. So, so first of all, let me just say that for anybody who thinks that slavery was oh so way long ago, we're talking to someone whose grandfather was born into slavery. Just as, just your grandfather. That's just two generations before you, Representative Lee. That 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 should speak volumes about how that this is not really that long ago. And sadly, the vestiges of, of it, of this evil system, um, the repercussions remain with us uh, to this day. I, I'm just, well, I'm, Michael, that's exactly, that's why, uh, and I wanted to, and I'm glad you, you said that because let me just uh, mention my truth, race, racial healing and transformation commission that I've introduced in Congress because a lot of people don't really get it. We have to, you know, 40 countries plus have had truth and reconciliation commissions to really tell the truth about brutality, genocide, human rights violations, slavery. This country has never done that. And so I've introduced legislation that would establish a commission to, to make the link between 401 years ago, which was uh, when the first enslaved people arrived or were brought to the shores of America, to what we see today in police murder and systemic racism and disproportionate rates of African-Americans dying from COVID and unequal education and lack of clean water and all of the systemic racist issues and policies of today are directly related to 401 years ago. And so this commission will help bring forth the truth and make those connections so that we can begin to dismantle and disrupt what was and what is and transform this country into one that's really free and just and fair for all. So you've introduced this in Congress this, this, to create this uh, a Healing and Truth Commission. Um, yeah, it's called Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation. And how will that work? Let's say that, let's say that this passes, which... I would think, uh, especially right now, this would have an excellent chance of passing. So uh, tell us exactly um, how this how this would work, because I think people listening right now, everybody who's been through this last uh, almost a month or so, but it really isn't just the last month. Uh, this, this kind of suppression, oppression, brutal uh, response on the part of many police, this has been going on for a very, very long time. And um, it, but I think now, I think you've probably noticed, I've noticed, I think we've gotten people's attention. And I mean, the majority of our fellow Americans, 75% in the poll yesterday said they support these demonstrations. So this seems like a moment. Am I wrong? Am I, am I too optimistic about that? Is that, do we have no, a chance? no, no. We, we have a chance. It is the moment, and we have to seize the time. And let me tell you, uh, these types of commissions are extremely necessary to get past uh, the oppression of certain people. Again, there have been 40-plus. Some have worked, some haven't. There was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Uh, you know, there are mixed reviews about that. Uh, the one in Rwanda, certainly after the genocide in Rwanda, uh, really brought... Uh, some healing and some closure, uh, and now the countries move forward. And so each context is different, which whatever the brutalities were. And so in, in America, and that's why this is so. This moment is so important. And I've got about 124 co-sponsors on it already. And you know, in Congress, co-sponsorship wow. is what's that's happening. A, yeah, we got to get to 215. You know, yeah. and I just introduced it two weeks ago. 
Right. And so we're trying to get to 218. So whoever is listening, please call your members of Congress and tell them to sign on to this. Because what he would do would be, and we don't, we're not going to be too specific under this administration because we don't want them to take this commission and put their people there and, and destroy it. <laughs> and right. so what we want is to have a commission of people who will begin to set forth the historical context and record. We would have people from local, like in local communities now, there's, there are quite a few racial uh, truth-telling events taking place, town meetings, moving toward healing and transformation at local levels. So we want local people to come forth and tell the story of their, their uh, how, for instance, uh, lynching, which the last lynching was, what, in the 60s. Uh, did they have relatives who were lynched? What is the generational trauma, the racial trauma that that has resulted, and how do we fix that? And again, we want the commission to lay out the facts and also make sure that people know that this is no, we're not talking about you personally. We're talking about a system of government, government laws that were based on slave, based on African Americans being three fifths of a human being. And, you know, when you go through history, and this is the story we have to tell, so these uninformed people who are now all of a sudden seeing the light understand this. You know, you had, um, you, you know, you had slavery, you had uh, Jim Crow, you had the Black Code, you had lynching, you had segregation, you, you, you know, the Jim Crow laws that still some are on the book. You have mass incarceration. You have all of these moments in history where these chains were st- have not all been broken. And so we've got to tell the story so people understand why a, a Mr. Floyd could get killed by police. Why right, right. black people uh, over 50% may barely make barely the minimum wage. Why there's such a huge wealth gap in the African-American community. Why African-Americans, you know, are on the front lines without PPE. So we have to kind of put the historical context so people understand we're not talking about you personally. You may have your personal racist attitudes. Just don't let them play out in policies. Leave us alone. But this is how the system of government works that continues to enslave and lynch people, quite frankly, in different ways. Yes. Well, that's certainly what, what happened to George Floyd. He was lynched in that, in that street. He was strangled, not by a rope, but by that's a right. knee, by the knee of by a cop. Knee. And it, right. the... the um, let me just go back to, to Juneteenth, because I think um, there are a number of, of white Americans who are just becoming familiar with this, uh, this particular day. And as you said, this, this was the day that when Texas, so this is like, okay, so the Civil War ends in April. Um, and of 63. Of, well, yes, well, in 63, what? Abraham Lincoln uh, releases the Emancipation Proclamation, which essentially, not essentially, it freed the slaves. This is 1863. Right. So it's in the middle of the war. And and so word, of course, you know, there's no mass media back then. There's no internet. Uh, word traveled slow through the South in 1863, 1864, uh, that Lincoln had essentially had freed the slaves, even though the war was still going on. And of course, the Southern plantation owners were not freeing their slaves, but as word spread, it, 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 um, it, it created a, you know, from one slave plantation to the next, they, they not only learned of this, there, there were uprisings. There were uh, people uh, who uh, 
work together to escape. But Texas, Texas did not get the word until June, June 19th of 1865. Does that, is that just sort of, does that just kind of boggle the mind a bit? I mean, it's just that, that, that it took that, that, that slaves in Texas were still slaves two years after Lincoln freed the slaves. It, it's stunning. Yeah, it boggles, it, it boggles the mind. And since my grandfather was born, <laughs> you know, two weeks before, it really boggles my mind. And I grew up recognizing that Juneteenth was really my Independence Day. And the Independence wow. Day for so many African Americans in Texas. So I moved to California. We moved when I was uh, thirteen, and in Southern California, there are many African Americans from Texas. And so Juneteenth in Southern California was always a big deal, but it was primarily in the Black community. So fast forward to today, um, I've celebrated Juneteenth since I was born. But uh, in my district, <laughs> it's really interesting because the African American community there which um, because of gentrification and cost of living is, is becoming very uh, extinct, unfortunately, uh, down to 18%. But black people here uh, still celebrate Juneteenth, but the larger community had no clue. So about 15, 16 years ago, I started doing events and one, you know, we still have to do fundraising. One event I do every Juneteenth this year, it's going to be this Saturday with uh, Julian Castro from Texas, uh, a virtual event, a Juneteenth fundraising where I raise money. And these are primarily my maxed out people who over the last 15, 16 years have come to understand what Juneteenth means and for me and for the black, for black folks in the Bay Area. And so this has been, and they're shocked and, and they come back every year. And of course, you know, we tell the story of Juneteenth. Uh, they, they help us um, make sure we contribute to progressive, uh, you know, women and people of color candidates who uh, would come to Congress to do the right thing. And so they contribute. But at the same time, they helped me celebrate Juneteenth at my house uh, at a big barbecue fundraiser. So I've been trying to do this in a lot of ways. Yes. Well, you have you have invited me for the past few years to come out to the celebration. And I swore to you last year, I said this, I am definitely going to be there. The next year, 2020, on Juneteenth, in your backyard at the barbecue, and then this happened, and and so I've been in my in my own lockdown, and not well, able- well, Michael. Next year, next year, next year, next year. Okay. I swear, we're saying this in front of hundreds of thousands of people right now that I will next be year. there. I will be there next year, and 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 I'm uh-huh. I'm ha- I'm happy to be. I'm happy that this year. Uh, that I do get to spend a few minutes with you here to talk about these very important issues because uh, you know your your bill is so important to have this uh, this uh, truth and healing uh, commission, but also all the other things that you fought for over the years. I mean, I've admired you for so long. I, I remember back when um, the um, uh, after nine eleven, um, and everybody wanted to go to war right away. And, uh, and so there was a, a bill being rushed through Congress to go to war. And this is just, this is just right after nine 11 and nobody dared to go against a Bush or, or, or the war. And so when they held the vote there on that day in our house of representatives, 
only one congressperson said, no, no, no war. We need to figure this out. We need to figure out what happened and we need to have the appropriate response. And that lone congressperson was you. You. I, I wanted to ask you this for a long time. <clears throat> what was that day like? How did you find the courage? And I know, I know you're courageous and all this, but to stand there, there's 435 of you in that room. And to have 434 on one side of the issue voting one way and you alone voting, voting, in my humble opinion, the correct way against war, a war that we're still not out of, our longest war ever, that you knew that this was folly. Tell me what, I mean, help all of us out because we're all, we all find ourselves in these positions where we try to find Try to summon the courage when everything and everyone seems to be against us. And there you stood. I mean, I want to hear right from the gut. What was that like? How did you do that? Well, Michael, first of all, you did Fahrenheit 9-11, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, but I'm still, I still don't, I'm still not you. I still, I don't know. I seriously, I would hope I could be the lone person standing against war, but I, I, I don't know what it would look like with 434 members of Congress. Some uh, of them, you know what? Good friends. You know what? Yeah, but you know what? Uh, I read first of all <laughs> the resolution. Now, the context is, of course, uh, what over 3,000 of us, of our people, or people in the, in New York. Uh, in uh, at the Pentagon in D.C., uh, Flight 93, were killed. So everybody is angry, including myself. My chief of staff, uh, first cousin, Wanda Green, was on Flight 93 as a flight attendant, which we know was coming into the Capitol. And I'm sitting in the Capitol, right, and uh, early that morning. And so in my office, we were really reeling from this in a lot of ways. And, and so I'm, I'm naturally uh, upset, angry. We got to do something. But I also knew that uh, this three days later was not the time, first of all, to respond because we didn't even know what was going on. Secondly, you don't, um, elected officials are elected to be above the fray. And yes, we're uh, are human beings and we feel the pain and suffering and anguish. But uh, as a psychology major, you know, I have, I'm a clinical social worker by profession. I know that you don't make hard decisions in the moments of uh, an emotional moment and when people are grieving. Uh, you just don't do that. So that's the first thing. I knew that was much too quick to come up with a, a strategy to respond and whether it should be retaliatory or not. I read the resolution at first and I went to the Democratic caucus said, we can't do this. It's overly broad and this is going to set the stage for a perpetual law war. They went back and tried to fix it, which maybe they changed a few words, came back, and it was still and, and Michael, this resolution in 60 words said the president any president, and wasn't just Bush the president's authorized to use force forever. I mean, that's in essence what it said. It didn't even mention Afghanistan in the resolution. It was just overly broad, mm. and it was crazy and, and I said and I told my colleagues, you can't do this and although we got to, we got to, we got to show you that we're unified with the president. I said, yeah, but we have to be careful uh, that we don't respond 
in a way that's going to create more terror, more havoc, and more death and destruction and lead us into war with, wars without end. And so, yes, it was hard, but I went to the uh, National Cathedral for the memorial service. And let me tell you, uh, and I was struggling with it, knowing that it was going to be hard. But the uh, Reverend Nathan Baxter, who was the uh, chaplain or the dean of the National Cathedral, in his eulogy, he said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. Mm. And right there, right in that uh, cathedral, I said, okay, whatever, let the chips fall where they may. Now, I'm a person of faith. I think you know that. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the scriptures, it's in Ephesians, it's, uh, you know, you just stand when all hell breaks loose <laughs> and, until you put on the full armor of God and you just stand. And so I had to draw on my faith. I talked to uh, my pastor. I talked to my beloved, my former boss and colleague, Ron Dellum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they didn't give me advice on which way to go. They just kind of walked me through the implications of, of everything. Uh, that we were dealing with. And um, finally, and I talked to my mother and um, I told him, and I told Elijah Cummins, he was the last person I told. I said, you know, Elijah, before I went to the ceremony, the uh, memorial service, I said, it's going to be a hard one, but I've got to do this. And he said, boy, he shook his head. You know how Elijah was? He says, I don't know if I'd do that, but I sure do respect what you're doing. And, you know, (laughs) he was so kind to me. Yeah, and so great. when I went he down there, the boat was supposed to be on Saturday, and instead they changed it to Friday. And I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee, so then it was uh, Tom Lantos. His office called said, she better get down here because we're going to do it today <laughs> instead of the boat. And if she wants to speak, you know, hurry up. So I went down to the floor, and I think I spoke for a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a hard, hard couple of minutes speech for me because I was feeling the anger and the pain of everyone. Uh, sure. in the country, but I said, I quoted uh, Reverend Baxter, you know, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. And so during that period, what happened was after I voted no, I was the only red light that came up. Everyone came back to me. I was in the back of the chamber and said, Barbara, you got to change your vote. You're going to die. <laughs> A couple of people, you know, they're not going to let you get away with this. You're going to yeah. lose your election. You know, all of oh, that. Yeah. They must have and, all, they must have told you that's the end of your political career. Oh, that most definitely, that was just a given. And yeah. my mother later said, look, I could have told them that when you make your mind up, <laughs> forget it. You're <laughs> right. pretty stubborn. But I just said, no, you know, and I told my colleagues, you know, there come times in your life where you have to stand on you either your conscience, your principles, uh, the Constitution. And it was all of that, because when you read that, that was totally unconstitutional. It led us now into the, they've used that resolution at least 41 times in Guantanamo for domestic spying here, Mm, Yemen, uh, everywhere in the world. And so now, uh, okay, so what happened during that time, though, I'm a a military brat. My my dad was a lieutenant colonel in the Army. Mm. So when I walked back to the Capitol... Of course, by then, CNN was putting it out there, and I'm getting death threats. And I yeah. mean, for a while, I had to have full-time, 24-hour security. It, it was really bad uh, in yeah. terms of the anger. And my dad called me, okay? And toward the end of his life, he instead of calling him dad, he liked us to call him uh, Colonel Tut. That's the type of military man he was. <laughs> so, so Colonel Tut called me. He said, you know what? That was the right vote. He said, you don't send our troops in harm's way unless you know what you're doing. 
he said, and that is a crazy resolution. He said, I'm really proud of you. Stand, uh, stick to your gun, you know? And yeah. so it, it became, you know, I had to just stick to it because that was the right thing to do. And so now we've repealed it. Uh, of course, Trump and the Republicans won't support the repeal, but Democrats have. We repealed it in the House. It was over in the Senate. And, you know, some are trying to undermine what we did and come up with some alternatives to full repeal. But we're standing our ground and saying, no, we've got to repeal these. And then if we're going to go to war, you come back and debate and authorize specific authorizations if, in fact, that's what the Congress wants to do. So, yeah, that, it was that, a rough time. But, um, you know, if anyone is interested in the responses, there were 60,000 emails, phone calls, messages. They're housed at Mills College in their archives. And looking back, Michael, uh, I've re- heard from um, Coretta Scott King, Bishop Tutu, you, you name it, world leaders, people from all around the world supported that vote. And so probably about um, 50% are all death threats, I hate you, uh, and we're coming after you. But then there were 50% who came from people who really understood and supported what mm. had happened. That gave me a lot of consolation and, yes. you know, uh, helped me through it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you who else supported you was my dad. He was uh, then in, in his 80s. And uh, he was a Marine veteran of World War II. and wow. And he said that that she... Was, he couldn't believe you were the only one because he, he as, as a World War II veteran, because he saw the worst of it in the South Pacific. So uh-huh. he was he was like that that no president should ever send our young people to war unless it's the absolute last resort, unless it's absolutely necessary and and for the for the true self-defense of the country. And um, he was so upset. Uh, when that when that vote took place, and Boy, I wish, maybe he knew my dad. <laughs> I know it sounded like yes. He he didn't make us call him Colonel, probably because he didn't really get above the rank of private. But but he was but he was um but but I wish he would have lived to have seen this this victory that you finally had in the House. So you and every year you you put forth a bill to repeal this this uh, this awful awful piece of legislation, and then finally. You were successful, and yes. uh, and and now, now what do we need? We need to flip three seats in the Senate, right? And uh, and that's the, right because we're new- coming back with the repeal this year. Uh, we need to flip. I think it's, it's more than three. What is it, about six seats well, in the Senate? It, oh, it's that many. Okay, well, it's it's and, and we have and we need a new occupant at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue. Oh well, that's a given. We got that's November the is. <laughs> we got to do that for our for the national security and our salvation and the pres- preservation of democracy. That's that's a given. I've been telling I've been telling people though, don't take Trump for granted. Don't every I, I, there's too many people saying, oh yeah, this one's easy, no problem. Biden's going to win. We're all good. And I'm like, oh, no. that's that's the attitude you had when everybody kept saying Hillary was going to win. There's no way the American people will vote for this clown. And then, and then it happened. And I, I hope everybody is on their toes uh, between now and November 3rd. Yeah. Uh, well, Michael, you know what, though? Uh, Hillary won the popular vote. What, she won 3,000 3, more votes than... Yeah, 3 million. Than yeah. Than 3 million, excuse me, 3 million. Okay. So, and, and understand, and I tell people this all the time, when, when you drill down and when you look at all of the uh, reports and analysis from that election, 
it were these were precincts in in the cities where young people, people of color, progressives lived and did not vote. Okay, and so this is about us voting because the occupant of the White House now would not have won had we voted in this last election in those states. And so just know, uh, you know, we can't take it for granted. We have to vote because this is what happens when we don't vote. No, I know. She lost my state, Michigan, by uh, an average of two votes per precinct. That's all it would have taken. Two votes per precinct in Michigan. Um, But as I've also said, though, the candidate has to be a candidate that's going to inspire. We all, I constant. I'm hoping to have the experience I had on the morning uh, in, in November of 2008 when I woke up and I realized I was going to vote for Barack Obama. And I was so, I'm not the only one, tens of millions of Americans could not wait to get to the polls to vote. What do we got to do to make that sort of inspiring moment happen? What does Joe Biden need to do to, 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 to be that person where nobody is going to say, I'm sitting this one out. I'm, you know, where, well, where you, you can't wait to get to the polls. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I, I hope people can't wait to get to the polls, whether they, whether they believe Joe Biden inspires them or not. If they don't understand that, uh, our democracy is at stake and that what we see playing out in the streets of America are demanding change. And I'm not so sure that people really uh, get it. I think they do. And I think they're going to vote in spite of what they think need, who the candidate is. He is who he is. He's doing a good job and he hopefully will win. And people, no one's a hundred percent. And sure. You, you were with Bernie. I was with Kamala. We all had our candidates. Right. And, uh, and for me, as a progressive, as an African-American uh, woman who's a progressive left of center, who's always been out there, uh, I'm telling everyone, uh, if you need other people to inspire you to get to the polls, I know a lot of people who, who can inspire you to get to the polls. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, we've got to do this. And we've got to recognize that, um, you know, there's a clear distinction between a Joe Biden and a Donald Trump. And that those, you know... I mean, it's clear. And yes. so just know you may or may not feel inspired, but it's our duty, it's our civic duty, and it's our duty as Americans to, to vote to preserve this uh, this uh, country and our national security and our, and our democracy. And you've got to and you've got to get five to ten people to come to the polls with you. You can't just go this with year you, yeah. by yourself, or if you're voting by mail. By the way, are we going to be able to vote by mail? Are we going to win this? Because you know he well, said it. Trump said it so honestly. He said it's never good for Republicans when everybody can vote. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, but that's the other reason why people should vote. Voter suppression is real, and you're going to let them win by suppressing your vote. Like, come on, look at what just happened in Georgia. So in our legislation in Washington, we have put in funding for the mail, uh, the Postal Service. And, of course, he resisted that in the first bill. And he personally said, no, I'm not going to sign the bill if the Postal Service is funded. So we have an uphill battle. But we're working hard now with the states and local communities to make sure that voting at home is an option. Because you can't have what happened in Georgia. Uh, happen in November. So people have got to be, uh, we say, stay woke, be vigilant, and uh, insist that their members of Congress push to keep the funding that we put in this last bill, in the HEROES bill, which McConnell still hasn't taken up, in for the Postal Service. 
But if there is no other reason to vote, then they're trying to stop. Right. Do you is there is there do you have a person that you hope that uh, Joe Biden will pick as his uh, vice presidential uh, candidate? Well, it's got to be an African American woman, and I, you know, supported Senator Harris uh, for president. I think that her background, her skills, and and her views of of the world and and how we get to where we need need to go as country are very appropriate for the moment. Yes. Um, and I think that I think that it's got to be a black woman, though, regardless. Yes. Yes. Well, black women are the one, the one demographic that just came out in force against Trump in 2016. I think it was, I don't know, it was 95, 98% of African-American yeah. women voted yeah. and look, against we have, Trump. We elected Doug Jones. Look, black women have been the backbone of this Democratic Party forever. We've been the most loyal and consistent voters. You know, I've been on the DNC for eight years and uh, for myself, just to Try to crack those glass glass ceilings with the DNC has been an uphill battle. But uh, myself and uh, Congresswoman Waters and our activists uh, are doing that, and it's for the good of the country. I know we only have a little time left here, but I'm just, I, I'm. I, what would what 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 do you want to say right now to the you know this country? Everybody, everybody is in some sort of revolt, uh, whether they're in the streets whether they're in their own uh, self-quarantine, but they're, they're writing to their uh, members of Congress, they're calling their mayors and their city councils. There, there's so much activism right now, which you would hope would always happen in a democracy because a democracy can't exist unless the citizens are active. So, so what, what is that? You know, I was just, I don't know. I, I, um, I've been so deeply affected by what has happened in recent weeks. And it's not like I haven't been deeply affected before, but right now I feel that I, I feel that you, uh, that we're part of something much larger now. Stay in revolt. People need to recognize they're transforming this country and the world. When you see what's happening at the UN, the UN now is, it has made a statement about human rights violations in the United States and raising the issue of racism. Uh, at the United Nations. I serve as a UN rep from the House of Representatives to the UN. When you see what the people of this country are doing, it's like uh, as sad and as angry as people are. Uh, these protests are working. We got to stay in the streets and we've got to use our power now to uh, make sure we vote for the people who are going to continue within the policy realm, both state, national, and local, to make the systemic changes that we need. And so this is a time of hope uh, in spite of it all and in spite of COVID and in spite of the challenges that we're seeing with police murders, in spite of all of the awful stuff that's going on, you know, people are exercising their uh, democratic rights right now, their First Amendment rights. And so I'd say just keep doing it. We got to make sure these, uh, you know, uprisings and protests are strengthened and, and don't stop and just make sure we translate that into voting in November. Mm -hmm. And don't settle. Don't settle any longer for the income inequality that exists. You know, that's at the core of all this evil is the fact that we keep a certain segment of our population down because they simply don't, they can't make it to the next paycheck. They don't have $400 in their pocket or in their bank account. You know, you've seen the statistics that, that the majority yeah. of Americans if if they if they had a, an emergency, 
if they had a loved one who died and they needed to go across the country to the funeral, they can't afford to do that anymore. Michael, that's why this has got to be about racial and income inequality. And, you know, income inequality is real. Uh, and and working, working class uh, white people need to understand that uh, African-Americans have been there forever. And we have to unite to make sure that racial equity and income equity and equality go hand in hand so that we can get, you know, so that we can move forward and transform this economic system in America. Yes. And not, and not tolerate this any longer. I'm, I'm sick of it. After, after these 401 years, the fact that, that African-Americans would still be on the bottom rung of the economic ladder, that, that statistic, I posted it on my Facebook last week, uh, the, the median uh, family household wealth for white Americans is $171,000. Mm-hmm. And the average black family was 17000 Yeah. And, 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 if you, and if you count households that are headed up by, by women in the black community, it was some outrageous number. Like the total wealth that they owned was something like a thousand dollars. That's exactly why I've been telling our white progressives, if you know what I mean, many of our candidates that they've got to have this as part of their agenda and part of their messaging. We know a lot of our white progressives have been reluctant to really put race in the mix and to see this through a racial lens in in addition to an economic lens. So thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for, for everything that you've done. And thank you for letting me um, celebrate Juneteenth with you here today. This is such an honor. And I will be there at your celebration next year in Oakland, California. Next year. Next year. Okay. I'm Everyone... And I'm bringing the Golden State Warriors. I'm bringing the Golden State Warriors back to Oakland too. That's my other mission. Thank, thank you. That's <laughs> number one priority. Please do that, Michael. Please. No, <laughs> well, listen, I love. <laughs> I love Oakland. I love you, and um, I just uh, I will stay healthy. You do the same. Uh, we're gonna win this one, Barbara. This is it. This is our we moment. Are. Yeah. Tell everyone keep wearing masks. Keep physical distancing. Keep Wash washing your hands. your hands. Using hand sanitizers. Don't listen to. That 45th occupant in the White House, listen to the health officials and the scientists and what they're telling us to do. Please, please, please. This pandemic is real. I want to see Michael here next year in Oakland at my Juneteenth celebration. So we got to get over this. Yes, that's right. Well, happy Juneteenth, uh, Representative Barbara Lee. Thank you for being on Rumble and uh, and keep up the good work and let us know uh, whatever we can do to help uh, with what you're doing there in Congress. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a million, Michael. All right. You too. Be well. Uh Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. I want to add, as I've been saying now over the past few weeks, that those of you listening to this, those of you who've been out there on the streets, those of you who have written or called your representatives, whatever you've been doing, organizing in your neighborhood, just talking to people, having, having a conversation amongst white people about, about, you know, this is wrong. Let's fix this now. This, this this just shouldn't go on any longer. And of course, I'm not just talking about the police. I'm talking about this uh, this income inequality. I'm talking about emptying the prisons. We filled these prisons up with with black and brown Americans uh, at at such an outrageous rate. It's history will not be kind when they judge this uh, having done this. 
we need we need to think differently. We're smarter than this. Come on, it's the 21st century. The way we used to do policing shouldn't be done anymore that way. The way that the way that the way that we have prisons. You know, I I I get yes, there are a few people that we need to separate from others because they will cause harm. They will they have caused harm. They've hurt people. They've killed people. Men who are abusive to women. All of that. Yes, but everything else, it's so wrong. We need to provide help. We need to provide health care for people. We need to do all these things. Um, and uh, that was amazing to hear that story that just her grandfather, not her great-grandfather or her great-great-grandfather, her grandfather was one of the, the, the last babies born into slavery in the state that was the last state to find out that the slaves were no longer slaves. And so I can see why that, uh, this particular day today has been obviously very important to Barbara Lee's family. It's been very important to the black community uh, for some time. And wouldn't it be great if those of us who are not black would join in, join in this today. The rest of this day, talk to people. Uh, have your own, have your own little Juneteenth party. Have a virtual Juneteenth party. Um, you know, go to bed tonight with a, a commitment in your heart that you're not going to live in a country like this anymore. You're not going to allow the country to be this way anymore. And you're going to do use whatever power you have as an individual citizen to work with other citizens to right this horrific wrong. Oh, I know we can do this. I'm not, I'm not up in the clouds here. I'm not Pollyanna. I've seen enough though in the last month uh, to know that there have been a lot of white people in the closet thinking about they needed to change. They need to change their minds. They need to change what they do need to behave differently and and they came out millions have come out of that closet in this last month uh let's take their hand each one of us um yes they should have come out a long time ago but it happens when it happens that's the lesson of history and it's happening right now Every day, every day I, I get up now and I think, what can I be doing right now today? What is that thing I'm going to do today to, to move this ball down the field? New York, out the window here. Coming back, maybe. I hope. Um, thank you, all of you, uh, for listening. Thanks uh, uh, for tuning in to the, our, our podcast, your last one here with our uh, six month anniversary podcast and talking to our winners of the 5 millionth and 10 millionth listeners. Uh, great feedback on that. So thank you uh, everyone uh, for tuning into that. Please share this podcast. Please subscribe to it. It's free. Tell people about it. Um, and um, my, uh, my special thanks to all of you. That's it. That's it for today. Juneteenth, 2020. This year will go down in history, and you are the ones who are making that history happen. Thank you. 
and we'll talk soon. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. Yeah. Mm-hmm.